1: guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm wonderful. It's March. There's a spring in my step. Keep going. Literally, <laughs> there's literally a spring in my step. And it's almost springtime, which is my favorite, one of my favorite times, except for all the pollen and I'm still coughing. I'm still sneezing. Right. So hopefully when that stops, then I can truly enjoy the wonderful spring weather that we're starting to have. Melissa. Yes.
0: I love (laughs) the pep in your intro. It was like, I was like, wow, I should be more excited than I am today. (laughs) Just like about (laughs) life. (laughs) That was great. Well, for me, spring means, um, well, March means I get to turn over a new page on my Sister Wives calendar. I've got to send you a picture of this, Mandy, because it's my favorite. (laughs) It was a Christmas gift for my sister, but I won't look ahead. I want to know, like, I want to experience each new month as I flip over. So this month is, home is where the heart is. It's just the worst art from the Brown family, from Sister Wives, and it's so good. I'm going to send you a picture after this, but that's what I look forward to every month. The bills that are (laughs) due the beginning of the month and flipping over a Sister Wives calendar. Under simple, simple things, right?
1: Hey, everybody has to have something. Yes.
0: <laughs> and thank you. We had so many people join Patreon this past month. Thank you for joining us. We have a new brand new episode out on the escape from Alcatraz, which we both learned a lot.
1: I learned quite a bit. Well, I learned really interesting. Yeah. First of all, I learned that I knew nothing about yeah. the escape from <laughs> Alcatraz until um, this month. Somehow. I don't know. I feel like sometimes I hear about you know, stories that are sp- supposed to be like infamous, you know, something that everybody has heard of. And I'm like, right. how have I actually not heard about this? You know, or h- how do I not know very I worry much about sometimes. this? Yeah, I mean I worry too. Not sure are we that you sometimes. weren't in a
0: small <laughs> coma for like six to it's seven years. That's very what. possible.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's very possible. But um I'm not in a coma this week, thankfully. So <laughs> Yes.
0: And if you want to hear that episode, by the way, it's Patreon.com slash moms and mysteries podcast. We have five plus years of bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, all of that is there. Patreon.com slash moms and mysteries podcast.
1: Awesome. All right, so we are going to get right into the episode for this week. Um, So gathering with friends to celebrate Independence Day is what I would call an American tradition. So as a lover of all things summer, I personally also look forward to the July 4th celebrations because of the food, the fun, and the fireworks, of course, that come along with it. For many Americans, it's a day that we gather with friends and we collectively celebrate our nation's freedom. Those who have served or currently serve in the military honor the holiday, perhaps even more than us civilians do. In 2004, friends from Robbins Air Force Base were spending the holiday weekend together. But the party abruptly ended when a shocking double murder occurred in the wee hours of July 5th. Andy and Jamie Schlipsick were the image of young and in love. Both of them grew up in Peoria, Illinois, and they became high school sweethearts while attending Richwoods High School in the mid-1990s. Although Jamie attended a different high school for her senior year, the couple stayed together through graduation and eventually got married on June 8th, 2002. Jamie was one of three girls born to her parents, Jim and Deborah. She was always pleasant and always had a positive attitude, which made her really perfect for social work, which is the career path that she later chose for herself. As for Andy, he grew up with two brothers and his parents, Dave and Jacqueline. Andy graduated high school in 1997 and went on to join the Air Force. His duties included maintaining this ground radar equipment. In 2003, Andy was deployed in Iraq from April to October, and during that time, his commander described him as being an outstanding troop and a natural leader. Although Andy and Jamie were married and very much in love, they hadn't yet started a family. They had been living at Robbins Air Force Base for a few years, But in July of 2004, they were gearing up to move to Chicago in a few weeks. Living on base, the Schlipsics made friends with other members of the Air Force. Jason King, a senior airman in the 53rd Combat Communications Squadron, also lived on base with his wife, Paige, and their three-year-old daughter. Andy and Jason worked in neighboring units and became fast friends after playing a round of golf together, and their wives, Jamie and Paige, also hit it off and became really close. Andy was also friends with another senior airman named Andrew Witt, who he introduced to the rest of the friend group. Andrew had been in the Air Force since 2001. He first wanted to be a pilot and then at one point changed his goal to becoming an astronaut. He wasn't married and had no kids, but the Schlipsics and the Kings still welcomed him into their circle.
0: On July 3rd, Jason King and his wife Paige were having a get-together at their house, Andy invited Andrew Witt to come to the party, but this would be the first time that Jason met Andrew. The group of them stayed up well into the night, and about 1am, the Schlipsicks went back to their house, taking Andrew with them. He was going to stay at their house that night, so he didn't have to drive anywhere. So once they get back to the house, Andy goes off to bed while Jamie stayed up for a bit longer. So while Jamie is awake and alone with Andrew, he makes some type of sexual advance towards her, but Jamie rejected his attempts and she went to bed herself. Andrew then stayed on the couch in the living room that night, and he was gone before anyone else woke up that morning. The next day was July 4th, and being that it was on a Sunday that year, the weekend of celebrating just continued on. Later that night, the schlipsticks went back over to Jason and Paige's house, but this time it was just the two couples hanging out. They were drinking beer and cooking food on the grill, and sometime after midnight, Jamie actually tells the group that Andrew had tried to kiss her the night before when they got back to their house. After talking for a bit more, Paige decided to go to bed at about 1am, leaving her husband Jason awake with Andy and Jamie. A short time later, around 1.37am, Andy calls Andrew and confronts him about his inappropriate advances towards Jamie. After all, they're supposed to be friends, so Andy was really upset that Andrew would do something like this. At 2.21am, another call was initiated and it lasted for 33 minutes. And this was the last call that either Andy or Jason initiated. But at this point, there were two answered calls between the men, with nine unanswered calls. Meanwhile, Andrew is actually preparing for a fight. So keep in mind, at this point, it's like three in the morning, but Andrew changes into his camouflage combat uniform. He grabs a combat knife from his closet, and he places it in the trunk of his vehicle. He then drove onto Robin's Air Force Base at about 3.15 a.m., So Andrew ends up parking his car about 50 yards away from Jason's house, which is where Andy and Jamie were hanging out that night, and he watched everyone from a distance, through the trees, so he wouldn't be detected.
1: Finally, at around 4 a.m., after some back and forth with Andrew on the phone and also several unanswered phone calls, Andy, Jamie, and Jason left to go back to the Schlipsick house, which was about a quarter of a mile away from Jason's house. So in some of these phone calls that were going back and forth that night, Andrew actually talked to Jason, and he seemed rather apologetic for what happened. But in some of the other calls, Andrew would say that Jason and Andy should just come over and, you know, kick his you know what. So they were kind of just going back and forth. As we said before, keep in mind, it's the middle of the night. There is alcohol involved. So everyone's kind of just not really thinking maybe on their best. Um, You know, they're not really thinking as clearly as possible. So Andrew, who's watching from the trees and bushes, he's seeing Jason, Andy, and Jamie getting into the car and getting ready to head back to Andy and Jamie's house. So Andrew gets out and follows them on foot. And when he gets to the house, he made his way inside. Andy was in the kitchen. And when he saw that Andrew was there, he yelled at him to get out. And really, it just led to this scuffle. And they started kind of quarreling in the kitchen. So Jason came in and he saw that Andrew was trying to beat up Andy, so he put Andrew in a headlock to break the two men up. That's when Andrew pulled out the knife that he brought and stabbed Jason in the chest. Jason was startled and he backed away quickly and Jamie, who was also in the room, immediately noticed that Jason was hurt and she screamed, oh my god, you're bleeding. Up until this point, Andrew had never been in any trouble or caught up in such, you know, terrifying behavior. He didn't have any criminal history, and he had never been violent in the past, so this was really unusual. Andrew was born in June of 1982 to parents Terry and Melanie. Terry did have a history of drug and alcohol addiction, which may be what led to Andrew's parents getting divorced when he was three years old. Despite their relationship not working out, Terry tried to be a good father. He never missed a child support payment, and he visited with Andrew every Wednesday and every other weekend until Melanie and Andrew moved to Wichita, and then Andrew got to see his dad on school breaks. In 1988, Andrew and his mom moved to Wisconsin, and she married a doctor and had two more children. From this point on, Melanie became a stay-at-home mom. Andrew's upbringing was described as being restrictive and overprotective, as well as strongly religious. Andrew later said that his mother struggled with depression and stress and had a lot of trouble setting boundaries and dealing with anger. And he said that she actually had a pretty explosive temper and she lashed out and yelled a lot. Despite this, Melanie says that Andrew was a joy to raise. She says that he was a happy and polite child, he was never violent, never showed any signs that he had anything wrong.
0: So while Melanie seemed to be doing okay with her new life, Andrew's dad, Terry, was still struggling with addiction, and he began spiraling for the worse when Andrew was 10 years old. So Melanie and Terry both agree that it really wasn't a good idea for Andrew to see his father on drugs. So they decided to stop the visits until Terry was able to get sober. About two years later, Andrew started seeing his dad again. So around the same time, though, Terry remarries and Andrew was not a fan of his stepmom's kids. Andrew was homeschooled in seventh and eighth grade, and then he went to a private high school for his freshman year. For the last three years, he attended high school in La Crosse, Wisconsin, where he was described by one teacher as being a, quote, very fine student, end quote. Andrew participated in many extracurricular activities, including basketball, football, golf, and he also played jazz. After high school, Andrew's parents paid for him to go to a Bible school in England for nine months, where he did very well, and he was known as being a deep thinker and a good student who interacted well with his classmates. After finishing the nine months abroad, his father gave him around $30,000 from stocks that he had previously bought for Andrew. In November of 2001, Andrew joins the Air Force with dreams of becoming a pilot, and then later on, his dream evolved from there, and he wanted to become an astronaut. He was a senior airman and an avionics technician for the 116th Air Control Wing. However, according to his family, Andrew changed a lot after joining the military. On a trip home to visit his family in December of 2003, they noticed that he had picked up some bad habits, like he was cursing quite a bit. He also spent a lot of time bragging about himself, about how much he partied, and the fact that he would have five or six different girlfriends. And these were all things that seemed to be very out of character for the Andrew that his family knew prior to him joining the military. In early 2004, Andrew made a gross confession of sorts to a friend about how he was having this affair with this woman who actually had a 17 year old daughter and his goal was to sleep with them both so he could brag about having slept with a mother and her daughter which is Ew. terrible for a million reasons so in february 22nd 2004 andrew is in a motorcycle accident He apparently lost control on this patch of gravel about two blocks away from his house where he wrecked and he lost consciousness for an unknown amount of time. But after he regained consciousness, he actually got back on his motorcycle and drove himself to work. So this coworker sees him when he gets there and realizes something is really wrong with him. He looks disheveled and disoriented and he's walking and speaking slowly and he's also bleeding over his left eye. So the coworker says, hey, Andrew, I think you need to go see a doctor, which he ends up doing. He ends up being admitted to the hospital. He's treated for a closed head injury and he's released later that same day. So, all of this is important to know for later in the story, but that brings us up to speed to who everyone was and how they all knew each other. And we still have so much more to get into, but first, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. There's no universal hair care recipe out there and that's because your hair is as unique as you are. As someone who colors their hair and use lots of heat related products, I know that I'm in need of a little or maybe a lot of extra love when it comes to hair care and that's why I love my Prose formula. My goals for my hair are to have thicker, fuller, and less oily hair and Prose has helped me obtain all
1: three. Prose is unlike those other hair care products you've tried before because Prose is personal to you and your unique needs. Your relationship starts off with the pros hair goals quiz where it asks you things like what your goals for your hair are and more about you as a person like your eating habits as well as things like your zip code and how much damage your hair currently has. Here in Florida, we have to deal with some real humidity, and that changes what I need for my hair. So having my Prose formula be specific to the climate and the conditions to where I live is really incredible.
0: No matter how wonderful the Prose quiz is, I know it's always a little nerve-wracking to try something new online, but Prose is so sure that you'll love their product that if you're not 100% positive that Prose is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back with no questions asked.
1: Prose is the key to achieving all your hair goals this year. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash moms. That's P-R-O-S-E.com slash moms for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off.
0: Mandy, I'd say we know each other pretty well. If I were to ask you on the spot, what would you say
1: my two biggest annoyances in life are? Number one. Definitely corn nuts. Okay. Hard agree on that one. Number two, I would say wet shoes and socks. Bingo. And
0: while I still have to worry about you and your corn nut habit, I no longer have to worry about wet shoes and socks. Thanks to Vessi. Vessi's shoes literally make 100% waterproof shoes. Not water resistant, waterproof, and as us Florida girls get ready to embark on a season of afternoon showers every single day, can you think of anything I'd want more than Vessies?
1: Vessies and a Diet Coke sound like all you really need. And beyond storms, Vessies cloud bursts are the best shoe to have in the winter because although we don't live in a snowy place, I do visit my mom in New York, and Vessies will make life so much easier on my next trip. Vessies have all the features of a rubber winter boot, but built into a sneaker. Plus, they're waterproof and warm and way more comfortable than boots. And they have a lugged rubber outside to give you extra grip in those wet conditions. You could have really used a pair of Vessies to prevent that fall you had a few months ago at your house, Melissa. Okay,
0: hurtful, but true. I can't wait to get my Vessies. Not only do they have extra lining inside for the warmth in the cold, but they slip on and off, which is literally magical when you're trying to get your kids outside in a winter storm or a summer rain. Plus, they're made from a super soft knit material that keeps your feet warm in the cold, but cool in the warmer months. They are the year-round answer to wet feet problems. I cannot wait to throw my giant rain boots in the closet and enjoy comfy and cute waterproof shoes for once. Vessies are my go-to shoes by my door. Check them out in the link Vessi.com slash moms for a pair of your Vessie shoes. And now back to the episode.
1: Okay, so before the break, we were kind of really just introducing everybody in the story. There is several people so far that we've kind of introduced. So just to recap... Andy and Jamie Schlipsick were a married couple who lived on Robbins Air Force Base. Their friends, Jason and Paige King, lived about a quarter of a mile away from them, also on base. Andy was also friends with another guy named Andrew Witt, and he was a senior airman with the Air Force. On July 3rd, 2004, the group of them got together at the King home, and at some point that night, Andrew made a pass at Andy's wife, Jamie. When Jamie told her husband and their friends about this the following night, Andy and Jason decided to confront Andrew, and this confrontation led to Andrew bringing a knife over to the Schlipsick home, really just ready for a fight. After Jason got stabbed in the scuffle, Andrew used the knife to stab Andy, who then fell to the floor. Jamie ran to a bedroom and locked herself inside, not knowing what was going to happen next. Jason, who had been stabbed in the chest, managed to get up and try to escape from the house, but he wasn't able to get the deadbolt unlocked on the kitchen door, and while he was struggling to get out of the house, Andrew stabbed him again. Thankfully, he was able to free himself and get outside, where he ran towards the first house that he could see that had a light on. Andrew chased after Jason for a short distance, but then he thought that he should probably go back to the Schlipsick home to get rid of any evidence that he might have left there. Jason made it to a neighbor's house and collapsed in the driveway, and this neighbor was able to call for help. Meanwhile, Andy was also able to get to a phone and dial 911. When Andrew got back inside the Schlipsick home and saw Andy talking to the dispatcher, he made his way down the hallway and into the bedroom where Jamie was hiding, and he broke down the door. While he was on the phone with 911, Andy pleaded with Andrew not to hurt Jamie, but Andrew proceeded with his vicious attack breaking Jamie's arm and stabbing her multiple times while she laid in the fetal position. When he was done, Andrew went back to Andy and stabbed him multiple times in the ribs and heart. When the attack was over, Andy and Jamie were both dead and Andrew fled the scene.
0: That's such a chaotic scene.
1: (laughs) It is. It is. And to think of the dispatcher who's on the phone, um, in the research it said that the dispatcher was able to hear this attack taking place because Andy was on the call with them. And so I just, you know, I feel like a lot of times sometimes we do acknowledge and think about like the trauma that dispatchers have to go through when they are on a call like this and they hear something traumatic like this happening. But this is like one of those stories where it really makes you think like, gosh, I just like, my heart goes out to people in that profession that have to take these calls and hear like things that are so horrific like this. Um, My
0: husband's cousin, Brad, his wife is a dispatcher and she's the calmest person I've probably ever met in my life. She's wonderful. But I just think like every time I see her, I'm like, how are you?
1: (laughs) Because it just seems like such a
0: traumatic thing. I mean, you know, all of these jobs would be, but like, I feel like, like you were saying that that one gets unnoticed sometimes, but they could be on the phone with somebody during their last moments or hearing this kind of violent attack. And then you have to go home and live your life. Yeah. Yeah. It was around 5 a.m. on July 5th when the bodies of Andy and Jamie were found. Andy was found lying on his back in the living room with his cell phone laying nearby. Jamie was found in the bedroom slumped against the wall behind the door. Jamie's jean skirt that she had been wearing was found about 10 feet away from her body. A blood spatter expert believed that this skirt came off in the middle of the attack. The murders of the couple were the first murders to ever be committed on Robbins Air Force Base. Autopsies performed on the couple showed what a brutal death they suffered. 25-year-old Andy was stabbed three times, once to the left side of his back. The second was through his back and severed his spinal cord, which instantly paralyzed him from the waist down. And the third stab was to his chest, piercing the front and back of the left ventricle of his heart. This stab wound was immediately lethal. 24-year-old Jamie suffered five stab wounds, four of which were in her back and one to her left chest cavity that went through her diaphragm and into her spleen and caused her lung to collapse. Numerous organs were damaged in Jamie's body. Jason, who was the only one of the three to make it out of the house alive, was stabbed four times with three being potentially life-threatening. One stab punctured his left lung and went almost all the way through his entire chest cavity. He was also stabbed in the kidney and was cut through the splenic artery. Jason underwent emergency surgery where he lost four and a half liters of blood, which considering you have around five liters of blood in your body, is I just can't believe he survived <laughs> that yeah, kind of wow. that kind of loss, right? So he spent 15 days in the hospital before he was released, but after two weeks, his lung actually collapsed again, and he contracted a staph infection. So he ended up having four or five follow-up surgeries with over 30 days total in the hospital. Because he was in such critical shape himself, Jason wasn't able to attend the funerals of his friends, Andy and Jamie, which was something that really upset him. There was a memorial service on base for Andy on July 9th, and the couple's funerals were held on July 12th. Jamie's body was cremated and her ashes were placed in an urn, which was cradled in Andy's arms in his flag-draped casket, which really broke my heart to hear that. I mean, it's beautiful that they did that, but the visual is really tough. Around 1,500 people attended their joint funeral.
1: So there's not a lot known about exactly how and where Andrew was arrested, because much of the research for this story comes from Andrew's later appeal, so we can only piece together what we know from the evidence and what we know from the court documents. It didn't take long before the police caught up with Andrew, though. He was arrested on the same day the murders occurred, which was July 5th. The Air Force Office of Special Investigators was the arresting agency, According to one source, when a military personnel is arrested, they're not eligible for bail, but they still do have most of the same rights as a civilian. Suspects still have the right to remain silent and the right to an attorney, and they can either get a military-appointed attorney or you can hire a civilian attorney on your own dime. The same attorney-client privilege still remains, though. On July 8th, Andrew's squadron commander charged him with two counts of premeditated murder and one count of premeditated attempted murder. Next, the case went to the base wing commander who would decide how to proceed with these charges. So according to fine law, in the military, evidence against a suspect is brought to their commanding officer. And if they feel that there's probable cause, then the suspect can be confined for 48 hours. Within that 48 hours, they need to have quote, a neutral and detached officer who must decide if probable cause exists to continue the confinement. Within the first 72 hours, the commanding officer also has to do their own review of the evidence. And within seven days, a military magistrate must decide if confinement is still acceptable and appropriate. They must bring official charges onto the suspect within 120 days.
0: It's always fascinating to me how the laws in within the military
1: yeah they they're are, a little different
0: they're a little different but then there are some similarities but sometimes you're like wow it wouldn't happen this way you know right if they were outside the military but yeah it's pretty interesting
1: this almost seemed like it's designed to like speed the process up a little bit more like you have to have these things done on a timeline whereas right. i feel like you hear about a lot of cases that kind of and i don't know what what it is that some cases just seem to take forever and like the pro the whole process takes forever but I feel like this kind of seems like it's designed to be like let's move this along and get this case you know get this case going yeah so we're
0: not sure exactly when but at some point Andrew makes some sort of confession so Andrew says that he basically wore what he called his battle dress uniform that night because when he was sneaking onto the base he wanted to make sure that he would be able to see them without them seeing him He said that that night Andy was calling him and yelling at him that night over, you know, making advances to Jamie. Andrew then takes investigators to the place where he disposed of the knife, the uniform cap, and his boots. DNA from blood on these items was tested and later matched to Andy and Jamie. Red fibers were also found on the knife that were consistent with fibers from the shirts that Andy and Jason were wearing. This really blew my mind. The knife used in the killings had a six and a half inch serrated blade and a six inch handle, making it over a foot long altogether. Wow,
1: that is this terrifying. is like a sword. Yeah,
0: and it tells you how three stabs could kill somebody, or even one could. I mean, this is this is, in my opinion, he went there to definitely hurt people, not to scare Absolutely. somebody off. Yeah. This is this isn't small. So, Andrew's roommate was actually interviewed, and he said that Andrew told him he was going to wear his battle dress uniform to avoid being seen. And he also said that Andy threatened to tell their superiors about these advances that Andrew had made towards Jamie. And he was also going to tell their superiors about another affair that Andrew was having. And one thing that comes up a lot in stories with the military and something that we're familiar with is. This idea that if you're charged with adultery, you can actually receive a disciplinary action that goes all the way up to a court martial or dishonorable discharge. So Andy telling a superior about an affair that Andrew was having could have really big consequences. Andrew's roommate told authorities that he had gotten a voicemail from Andy early on the morning of July 5th, talking about how Andrew was making these advances towards Jamie. In the voicemail, Andy was saying he wanted the roommate to call him so that they could talk about it.
1: At his pre-trial hearing, Andrew broke down crying when he was shown crime scene evidence for the first time. He actually had to leave the courtroom to calm himself down while a deputy sheriff consoled him, and he wasn't even able to go back to the proceeding that day. Psych evaluations were given in preparation for Andrew's trial. He met with a forensic psychologist in October 2004 for a total of 12 to 14 hours over the course of two days. The doctor ended up giving Andrew a number of psychological tests, including several different personality tests. The same doctor met with Andrew again months later in June of 2005 and again in September of 2005, but he never actually made a psychological diagnosis of Andrew until after the trial began, and at that time, he said that Andrew had personality disorder not otherwise specified, with paranoid and borderline traits. Andrew was tried by general court-martial in the fall of 2005. If you're not really sure what that means, that's okay because I wasn't either. But according to military.com, military court-martials are the most severe sanctions under military law, and a conviction is the same as a federal conviction for civilians. The defendant can request to be tried by a judge only, but if they want a panel or a jury, then that panel is to be made up of members who are ranked higher than the defendant. There's also the option for the defendant to request that at least one-third of the panel be composed of enlisted members. For capital offenses, the panel consists of 12 members, and for non-capital offenses, it's eight, but the general court-martial can impose any sentence, including the death sentence. Andrew's jury trial took place in Macon, Georgia. There were over 430 exhibits and 60 witnesses presented in court. The trial couldn't be held in the Robbins Air Force Base courtroom because it was too small to hold the Schlipsick families and Andrew Witt's family. And even though they did move to a bigger place, there was still no seating left in the courtroom while the trial was going on. It was standing room only. And we have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
0: Mandy, when you and I started this podcast, we made a very conscious decision not to use our last names or really specific information about our families. And that's because we know that once this information is out there on the interwebs, it's almost
1: impossible to remove.
0: That is, until we heard about Delete Me.
1: You're so right, Melissa. And even with as careful as we've tried to be with our show, I still find my information all over the internet. Literally thousands of pieces of personally identifiable information is just out there. And while having this podcast has made us more conscious of this, it doesn't mean that it's not affecting you and your family. Having things like your home address, phone numbers, financial records, you name it, being all out and accessible for just about anyone can lead to some bad situations. Things like identity theft, credit card fraud, and even those annoying robocalls and scam emails can all originate from this. I started a few years ago putting in these requests to various websites to have my
0: name and address removed, and not only was it really time-consuming to do, but as soon as I would take one off, a new one would come up in its place. But with DeleteMe, instead of spending more than 50 hours searching and filling the request to get everything removed, I actually
1: used our code MOMS and signed up last night, and the process took me just a few minutes. Delete.me is an incredible service that not only finds and removes your personal information from literally hundreds of data broker websites, but it continuously scans for new data that shows up and has it removed as well. And incredibly, in their first two years to date, they've been able to remove over 35 million pieces of data for their customers, which averages out to about 2,000 pieces of personal data per customer, which is just a wild statistic to hear.
0: So if you want to get your personal information removed from search results on the web, please visit joindeleteme.com
1: slash moms and use our promo code moms. As a parent, your top priority is always your children's well-being. You want to give them everything they need to grow and thrive, both now and in the future. With term life insurance from Fabric by Gerber Life, help protect your family so their future is secure no matter what happens.
0: I'm the first to admit that I'm financially not the greatest, but when it comes to my kids, I'll really do anything for them. And Fabric makes it so easy for me by offering things like term life insurance that won't break the bank, plus, they have the added bonus of wills, access to college savings funds, and more all wrapped up in a package that's so easy to navigate, even I can do it. And that's because Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Plus you can see your quote and then personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. You could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required.
1: Protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meatfabric.com slash moms. That's meatfabric.com slash moms. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash moms. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions.
0: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home?
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply.
0: And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Andrew's upcoming trial and how that was going to be set up since this was done through the military and how this trial was actually being moved to a larger place because there was no seating for the families in the smaller Robbins Air Force Base courtroom. So since Andrew admitted to the murders, his trial was mainly to determine whether or not these killings were premeditated. The prosecution during the trial focused on Andrew's callousness and his clear lack of remorse as proof that he had planned this attack. They said he committed the murders because he was just simply evil and just bad, both words that they used, and that he didn't want Andy to tell their superiors that Andrew had made these sexual advances towards his wife and about this other affair that Andrew was having. So 14 different friends and family members of the victims gave impact statements, and five people testified about Andrew's lack of remorse. The surgeon who actually worked on Jason King after the stabbing also testified about Jason's injuries, surgeries, and really this aftermath that he was left to deal with. Andrew's defense was made up of two military appointed council members and one civilian attorney that Andrew picked himself. The civilian attorney had experience with military cases, but not with a capital trial. To prove that these attacks were not premeditated, They admitted that Andrew did stab Jason, Andy, and Jamie, but stated that his cognitive function was impaired due to the adrenaline coursing through his veins at that moment, which is kind of a wild statement to hear because of the adrenaline. Like, wouldn't that be anyone that was committing a murder? I feel like you'd have a lot of adrenaline to do that. That That's kind of weird to me. So not many people were even called to testify for the defense. There was one doctor that did take the stand, and he talked about the psychological effects of stress, adrenaline, and alcohol on a person's perception and memory. The psychologist that evaluated Andrew early on testified as well about this fight-or-flight response and what cognitive effects can be seen in a high-stress situation. He said all of these things affect impulse control, judgment, and decision-making abilities. The defense called Andrew's roommate to testify about the voicemail he got from Andy that night, but nobody was called to talk about Andrew or to prove he was not a quote-unquote evil guy like the prosecution was saying he was. So he really didn't have any character witnesses in the positive for him at all.
1: So the defense actually did plan on calling the first psychologist who evaluated Andrew in the beginning, but his testimony ended up being deemed inadmissible because he incorrectly stated that Andrew had schizoid and borderline traits, which is not what he told the defense before. Before, he said that Andrew had paranoid and borderline traits. So when he was questioned about this, he admitted that he did speak incorrectly and that the correct diagnosis was paranoid and borderline, but because of the mess-ups, The government actually asked for an independent psychological evaluation of Andrew instead. Andrew did agree to undergo this evaluation, and they later settled on letting the government's expert witness um, be the one to conduct this evaluation. But it was really at this point that things just began to fall apart for Andrew's defense. The government-appointed doctor came to the conclusion that the first psychologist had improperly read the results of at least one of the personality tests that Andrew took. Andrew admitted that he did not have a problem controlling anger, rage, and impulsivity, and he was also able to accurately recount his reasoning and behavior at the time of the offenses, and that's not consistent with cognitive impairment. They believe that Andrew did not have a traumatic brain injury from his motorcycle accident as well. After presenting the evidence and the testimony to the panel, they deliberated over the course of three days for a total of 12 hours before unanimously finding Andrew guilty. And the fact that the vote was unanimous made Andrew eligible for the death penalty. Before his sentencing, Andrew said, quote, to the families, I am so sorry from the bottom of my being. He said as he turned to face the families, I'm so sorry I took your son and your daughter away from you and also Mr. King. I am so sorry for hurting you. Andrew also submitted a written statement in which he apologized to the families of Andy, Jamie, and Jason, as well as to the Air Force. In the statement, he claimed his life had changed dramatically since that night, and that he had resolved to live a productive life in the service of others if given the chance, and he pleaded for them to let him live and not give him the death penalty. He also apologized and expressed remorse for bringing negative attention to the Air Force. On October 13, 2005, Andrew was dishonorably discharged and sentenced to death. He was the first airman to be sentenced to death since 1992. The last U.S. military execution was carried out in 1961 when Private John Bennett was hanged after being convicted of the rape and attempted murder of an 11-year-old girl. Jamie's father spoke at the sentencing and said, quote, It's bad enough that they're gone and you're going to never be with them, but that you have to live with the way she died this is the part that I just cannot, I can't understand, I cannot tolerate it, society should not tolerate it, end quote.
0: Oral arguments into Andrew's appeal were held in October of 2012. He appealed his conviction and sentencing on 88 different issues. Nearly a year later, the Court of Criminal Appeals found that there were three issues where the defense did not look into mitigating evidence which could have affected the jury's outcome— If even one person found Andrew not guilty, he wouldn't have been eligible for the death penalty. So this was really a big deal for his team. The first issue was a possible brain injury Andrew could have suffered in that motorcycle accident we talked about earlier. This happened just a few months before the murders, but he was never, quote, properly scanned, end quote, to find out how severe this injury actually was, where the lesion was located, and what specific abnormalities were possible with his specific injury. One doctor stated that his behavior was consistent with traumatic brain injury, but he couldn't be sure without looking at a scan of Andrew's brain. The second issue was regarding the mental health of Andrew's mother. They failed to investigate the family history of mental disorders. The court said that even though the psychologist said they did not need to get Andrew's mother's records, the defense should have done it anyway because it's their responsibility to investigate and bring attention to the mental health experts who were actually examining their clients. The third issue had to do with the defense not investigating testimony from the sheriff who consoled Andrew when he had this breakdown at the pretrial hearing. They didn't even ask the sheriff to testify about what happened, even though the sheriff later on said they would have been willing to do so. I found that to be interesting in the story itself that, like, the sheriff is the one consoling him after he's, like, breaking down yeah. to such a severity that they had to close court for that day. Like, it, nothing else was going on. So, It was just so interesting for sure Yeah, to not even say like, hey, what did this guy say? Because we also know he has confessed like he's talked about this confession to other people. So could he have said something else to this sheriff? It's definitely possible.
1: Yeah. So the Criminal Court of Appeals ended up affirming Andrew's conviction, but they set aside his sentence and called for a hearing by the judge advocate general. In response to the finding of the appeals court, the government asked them to reconsider setting aside the sentence, and in 2013, they did reconsider, and they found that the defense was not incompetent on the three issues they initially called into question. They ended up actually upholding the death sentence. This reconsideration included the opinion of three judges who actually did not participate in the original appeal decision. Andrew then appealed the court's reconsideration because he thought it was unauthorized for them to reconsider a previous decision and that it was wrong for the three judges to make a judgment on the reconsideration when they had nothing to do, I guess, with, you know, the case to begin with. On July 19th, 2016, a new sentencing hearing was ordered and Andrew was ultimately resentenced to life in prison. As for what happened to Jason King, after the attack, he was made staff sergeant while he recovered. He recovered. Once he was fully physically recovered, he had to sleep on the couch at his home so that he could be close to the door because he wanted to be able to hear anything that was going on. Jason even started keeping his doors unlocked Mm -hmm. because of the experience that he had, which kind of sounds like the opposite of what most people would do. You would think that if they were attacked in this way, you would stay locked inside your home. But it was because, you know, when he was trying to escape Andrew's attack, he was not able to get the deadbolt on the door open. And that's what led to him being stabbed again a second time. So in the wake of this attack, now he has to have the doors unlocked because he wants to make sure that there's always a way that he can escape if he ever needs to again. Jason started becoming startled by crowds and loud noises, and he became what he called hypervigilant. He ended up going to Airman Leadership School and won an award for the top student of an enlisted professional military education course. Jason served in Korea in 2009, and while there, he started working on a master's degree in management. He retired from the Air Force for good in 2011 after being diagnosed with chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, which was likely from the scarring on his lungs that were sustained during the attack. He suffered from PTSD, anxiety, and depression, and unfortunately began drinking and taking painkillers to cope. In 2009, Jason's marriage ended and he moved to Johnson City, Tennessee, where he worked at the post office until he eventually had to quit that job because he was unable to lift heavy things. And after that, he went on to fight for and win disability. As of October 2013, Jason's just spent a lot of time at home hanging out. He enjoys doing crossword puzzles. And he had been sober since May of that year. But it was really a constant struggle. He said that he wanted to finish school and become a drug and alcohol counselor. He said the toughest thing to overcome was knowing that he ran away from Andy and Jamie's house. Andrew is not listed on the Bureau of Prisons website, but some sources report that he is incarcerated at the United States Disciplinary Barracks in Leavenworth, Kansas.
0: Man, I think hearing what Jason's had to go through after is just, it's horrific and hearing him say how hard it is to overcome knowing he ran away from Andy and Jamie he wasn't running away from them but i'm sure in in his mind he feels that way but like
1: he was it's a survivor's guilt but, thing yeah
0: but he was running to get help like no one no one right. was
1: helping he he
0: had to do it
1: and it- Right. And that's the other thing. I feel like you hear this a lot with people who do survive an attack where others didn't survive or people who survive even an accident or something where other people were killed and they weren't and you just have that feeling like that you should have been of the sound mind to do something but you're being attacked as well. Like and your brain is telling you to get out of there, you know, not necessarily just to get help, but like everybody has their own sense of self-preservation. Right. You know, like first and foremost, your brain is protecting you. You're looking out for yourself. And so like, that's there's nothing wrong with that that's just your natural instinct is to take care of yourself first and then yes of course get help and that's your ultimate goal but I always it always breaks my heart to hear that people beat themselves up you know and say like that I just they have right. so much guilt for you know leaving the scene or for being able to get away and it's like I just feel bad that people feel guilty for that because it's it's a miracle in itself you know that that he was able to survive this attack um so it's like I, I just feel bad you know that people. That people feel bad. I feel bad that people feel bad ever for any reason. (laughs) Like especially in a situation like this. Yeah. I
0: mean, he's been through so much. So I'm glad that he has found sobriety and I hope that he can become a drug and alcohol counselor. That would be, I mean, that sounds like something that could be really good for him. But man, the story is so sad. There's just it just seemed so pointless. Like it, it just for what? (laughs) For what was any of this? It doesn't make any sense.
1: All right, so that was it for this week, Uh, Melissa. Are you ready to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go? I sure am, Mandy. And what do we have for us this week? Thankfully, not another game (laughs) where we just rude. I like the games. I know I like (laughs) the games too. Actually, people who have been listening have said that they've really enjoyed them and have found them really funny, which I'm thankful for because sometimes when we're doing them in the moment, I'm just like what are we doing? Like, we're just saying words. I don't even know what's happening anymore. But apparently, it's turning out well, but we're not doing that today.
0: No. So if you liked it, too darn bad. We have something else for you. This week, we have our lovely researcher and decent human, Haley Gray here to talk to us for a few minutes. Haley, how are you?
2: Hi, thank you so much for that great intro. (laughs) (laughs) I I said decent. (laughs) Yes, that was so nice of you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, we're always talking about Haley and just shouting her out for all the work that she does with us on the podcast. She does all of our research for us. And um, we, we've we never had Haley on. We don't really often have people on the show with us. So that's how you know Haley is very, very special because we brought her on today. We thought you guys might like to hear a little bit from Haley and kind of what she does. She doesn't just do research for us. She actually works for other podcasts as well. So Haley, why don't you tell us, tell us about you and what you do.
2: Okay. Well, I, um, (laughs) (laughs) I am very awkward. (laughs) Um, Get that out of the way right away. Right. Um, So I, yeah, I research for multiple shows, um, I would say that you're my longest client. I've been with you guys the longest. Um, I thought you were
1: going to say favorite, but I guess you can't really say that. How rude would that be if she did that? <laughs> right. I would literally make a TikTok and that would be the whole sound. <laughs> um,
2: You could just use like AI and just create it if you want to. Who are
0: you talking about? AI, this is AI. I don't <laughs> even
2: know where Melissa is. <laughs> um, yeah, so I work for multiple shows. I um just sometimes i write for shows too um but it it's not conducive to write it's i would be weird if i wrote the show for you guys so i don't do that i just do the research and um i've been with you guys for i think we tried doing the math it's been over 4 years i think now really wow.
1: That's disappointing for you.
2: I, <laughs> no, better I can't for you. get away.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, um, so we actually met Haley very early on when we started the podcast. Back then, she wasn't researching for us. She was actually doing her own podcast. And um, we were reminiscing about that the other day. I was on Haley's podcast, and we decided Melissa was not on it. It was just me. For some reason, I still don't know why I would go on. A podcast without Melissa I feel like that may have been the only time in history that I've ever done that
0: here's the thing I've done it a lot (laughs) Um, but but I'm always doing it on like reality adjacent shows nobody invites me and they're like yeah well I think you would probably rescind it so I just am like sure yeah you you can take me but yes Mandy you were on Haley's old show and you guys became friends right is that true
2: yes of course it's true did you become friends (laughs) (laughs) Haley answer (laughs) Yes, we are all friends.
0: (laughs) Neither one of us laughed. So um, that's going to (laughs) sound awkward to listeners. (laughs) No, Haley's great. Um, We've talked about this recently. But when Mandy and I found out that Haley was researching and researching for other people and like you get to know people in the true crime world and, you know, we knew how great – the shows were that Haley was re- researching for, but they were like really big shows. Way greater and than us. Way, <laughs> oh way bigger than we could even dream. So like, I just very much remember the back and forth of Mandy and I texting each other like, should we ask her? Do you think she'll say no? I'll be devastated if she says no. But Maybe we should ask, what if, what if she says yes? <laughs> so congratulations. You were our big get, Haley, and now we'll never let you go. I
1: think she's I mean, the one who should be congratulating us in that case. <laughs> is I that true do,
0: my ai senses are wearing <laughs> off i don't know Uh-oh. if that's true okay
1: <laughs> yeah haley was the common denominator between all the great shows so we we, true. Didn't, we didn't feel worthy so yeah here we
2: are now we still aren't <laughs> which is so crazy continue you definitely are worthy of my amazing services
0: <laughs> go more <laughs> We wrote a whole script out for you. I don't know why you haven't brought it out yet. Um, just outlining all the best things about us as people, as humans. Um, it is funny, though, in text chains with the three of us where Haley will say things if we do something even decently nice. She'll say, I, I promise I won't tell anyone you guys are nice.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't want to break if the illusion. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So Haley, you've been in true crime for years. Is there a case that is especially close to you that you want more people to know about that maybe we haven't been able to share on the show, because I definitely know which one you're going to talk about. But <laughs> is there a show you'd like to share? Or I'm sorry, an, uh, a story you'd like to share?
2: Sure. So um, we've talked about this off mic. Um, but there's a case that's near and dear to my heart, but unfortunately involves a child. So it's not Necessarily the best fit for moms and mysteries, and that is the case of Oakley Carlson. It's um it's about a little girl who was living in Washington, and um, when she was a baby. Uh, her and her siblings were taken away from their parents by Washington's version of DCF, which is just DCYF for the Ys for youth. And so Oakley and her siblings were taken away and they were put into different homes. And Oakley um, went to stay with Eric and Jamie Jo Hiles. And um, they're incredible, incredible people. And they raised Oakley like she was their own, um, because she went to them as a baby. Like, and they raised her when she first started talking. Like, she called them mom and dad. Like, they were Mm. literally her parents, and she completed their family because they weren't able to have children on their own. And they've been really open about this. That's how I know. And um, anyway, so they loved Oakley, and. Um, unfortunately, because DCYF, like there are a lot of problems with the Washington, uh, like their DCYF. And for some reason, they let Oakley go back to her parents, even though they were still using drugs and there was abuse, domestic violence in the house that Oakley was witnessing. And she would come home after her like visits with her biological parents and she would come home and she would tell the Hiles about it and they would record her and they would send it to DCYF and they just didn't do anything about it mm. and the more and this is like what it feels really petty I'm not sure if it's related but it does feel related like the more the hiles like sent things in to DCYF like hey oakley should not be around her biological parents right. unsupervised it seems like DCYF like took more of their power away and Oakley was allowed to spend more time with her biological parents. They had started like the process of adopting Oakley and, oh, wow. and so like sh- she was their daughter. And then all of a sudden years later, after bringing her into their home um, DCYF was just like, yeah, she's going back with her parent with her biological parents. Mm-hmm. And so just like one day out of nowhere, like, the Hiles didn't have their daughter anymore and they weren't allowed to see her ever again. And um, I, it's been a while since I've researched. So like my timeline's a little bit off, but I would say like within a year Oakley was missing. And um, by the time anyone realized that she was missing um, and it ended up having to be her like priest, the principal at her preschool um, ended up figuring it out. It had been like, nine months since anyone had seen her. Oh, wow! Oh, and um, the reason why the principal figured out was because there had been a fire at the home and um, they were still living in the home. Like, it was really horrific. Yeah. And anyway, so no one knows um, where Oakley is. And when police started questioning her biological parents, they were very elusive. And um, they have refused to cooperate and um they have been in jail since then on unrelated charges but charges because they are um neglecting their children and yeah. the other children and so um Oakley's biological mother is actually still in prison but her father is out and both refuse to cooperate and um it's really sad the Hiles have continued relentlessly um fighting for Oakley And sorry, I'm going on a lot about this. I'm so passionate, but, um, they have just nonstop been in the media and they, every time there's a court date, they show up with who they call Oakley's angels and they show up at every court date with like signs. They show up at the jail. Um, they will not let people forget Oakley and, um, They just really want some answers and they also want DCYF to be held responsible. There's a lot more to the story um, with their handling of the situation, but they want people to be held responsible for letting Oakley go back. And they also want to make changes so that this never happens again. And I feel like Oakley's case is a really great one to get involved in. If you feel like, There's something you want to do, but maybe you can't like monetarily donate to a GoFundMe or something like Oakley's case is a really great one where um, they have tons of resources um, where you can send in letters to the governor and you can um, really get involved in a way that doesn't like that is free because I know like money. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard to get financially involved in all of these cases, but this is one where. There are so many different ways you can help and you can um, follow the Hiles journey and um, they're just never giving up. And it really gives me goosebumps to think about all of the things that they've been through and they still are fighting for Oakley and they will never give up.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, the story's heartbreaking, but it's amazing what they've what they've done and remind us what podcast you uh, researched that story for.
2: Yeah, so um, I ended up researching and writing a two part series on Oakley for Big Mad True Crime. Um, That's hosted by Heather, which I know you two are friendly with her. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so we did a two part series on that one, and um, the family advocate has listened and um, was really happy with the outcome. And honestly, like the reason the episodes were so well put together was because the hiles run a website where they have like an incredibly detailed timeline with like sources listed and they also like have included their own evidence like emails they sent to dcyf and and things and so truly like they are out there like doing so much for her so um yeah if you're interested in hearing more about oakley please check out the two-part series because like we talked about it's not the best fit for moms and mysteries because it, it does involve a child and foul play is um suspected. So yeah.
0: yeah. Well we'll definitely have links to that in the show notes for people to check out. Definitely listen to that. Haley, we appreciate you coming on and talking to us. We would love to hear something fun you're watching, you're listening to, is there a podcast people should listen to that you love? What what What's something fun about you? We like to end the show on a... on a.
1: Did you just ask Haley what? what something fun about her
0: is? Haley, what's something fun about you? Nothing. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> um, well, I'd say if I had to recommend a podcast, like one thing about me is that I love um, bad movies. I think they're so fun to watch. Like you can just turn your brain off and just have a good time. And um, my boyfriend and I love just, like, making fun of a movie while watching it. Not, like, being mean, but, like, just really getting into it and just, like, questioning like the glitter all of the it all Yeah, like, what is, like, we just watched this one movie from, I think it was the 80s, about, like, it was called The Barbarians, and it starred, like, these two bodybuilder twins that had, like, never acted before. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the costumes were just outrageous, and just everything about it was so funny and so like just hilarious we just had an amazing time watching it um so there is a podcast that i've been listening to for years now called how did this get made and it's um it uh is with three hosts um and they've all been on the show the league uh which if you're a comedy fan you may have heard of um but i had been watching that show years ago and then i found out that two of the main cast members had a podcast together and then the third person is one of their wives and she's she actually was on the show too um but it's three improvisers um who are just so so funny and they watch a bad movie and they have a guest on and they just talk about it and it's so fun. Like I've traveled around the country to like see the show live and um, it's just a really great show. If you love comedy and love um, bad movies, you don't have to watch some movies to listen. But it's definitely just like a fun listen, um, right. especially if you uh, research true crime all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. Like when people ask us if we listen to true crime i do i will listen to some but i have to be very selective because i can only take in so much um so yeah having something fun like that just like you were saying to turn your brain off i i barely have my brain on so i i thrive in that sort of environment yeah
1: and same. you guys are both enneagram sixes so that makes total sense that you have mandy bringing up the enneagram <laughs> exact. you guys have the same like habits and preferences Yes. Silence.
0: I'm keeping the silence in there. (laughs) I will not edit that out.
2: (laughs) Yes. Melissa and I definitely have the same exact personality type and we'll text each other like hey this person hasn't texted us in like five minutes do they hate us (laughs) yeah
0: Haley will like ask about she was asking me about somebody that we had done a story on or whatever and she was like do you think we should email I'm like absolutely not I can't you can't deal with this I can't deal with it being a bad answer so no we're not doing it (laughs) it's like Haley's my emotional support person for
2: things like that (laughs) we're both feeding off each other we're like I know. this person definitely hates me right and she's like yeah. no but if she was in the same situation she would think they hate her too and
1: i would write mandy and she'll just heart my message i'll be like wait what does that mean is that good is that <laughs> yeah because i am not a six so i don't have i have to sometimes think um I have to. Th- I have to consider your feelings as a six. Sometimes I appreciate there being two sixes now because I'm like, she has to be nice to me. Well, it she's makes it nice easy. It makes it easier to deal with both of you because I'm like, okay, I get it. I've seen this before. <laughs> you are really, really good
2: about being like, hey, sorry, I've been busy. I don't hate you. I've literally just been living my life. Um, everything's fine, and I'm like, okay, thank God. <laughs>
0: Well, that pretty much sums (laughs) everything up about the three of us working together, I think.
1: I think so. Um, Yeah. Haley, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us a little bit on the show. Mm -hmm. I know it's always great to talk to you. We love talking to you, Haley, and I hope that everyone enjoyed listening to you talk (laughs) as well. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Hopefully, my awkwardness um, doesn't, you know, like go through the speakers and affect other people.
0: I'm keeping that positive as well. <laughs> okay. Oh,
1: good. <laughs> All right, Mandy. All right, guys. Well, that was everything for this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye.